You're listening to Middle East Analysis, a podcast series taking a close look at the Middle East North Africa region. Hello and a very warm welcome to Middle East Analysis. I'm James Abbott. You don't often hear my name. In fact, have you ever heard it apart from when Harry mentions it? Probably not. So I'm mentioning it now. I'm sitting opposite the man himself, Dr. Harry Hagopian, and we always sit down to talk about the Middle East, North Africa. And these days we always start by saying it has been such a long time since we talked about. So, Harry, there are so many things to talk about, whether it's the popular uprisings in Lebanon, whether we talk about literally the uprisings in Iraq. I mean, I could go through a whole list of countries. We can talk about the GCC and the Gulf states. We have done many times in the past. We could talk about Syria and Turkey's coming into the north of Syria and where we're at with that as well. The death of al-Baghdadi, the former leader of ISIS, and the fact he's been replaced already and what that means for the region. Such a long list. First of all, I say hello. Hello, Hello James. <laughs> After all that, how are you? It's a it's a pleasure to be sitting in front of you again and to do one of our uh, Middle East analysis uh, podcasts. You're absolutely right. Now we are very undisciplined. <laughs> we do it infrequently, but that's fine because we're not following the nitty gritty developments every day of the news. This is not a news podcast. This is basically something of an overview where we sit and have a conversation or a chat about some of the things that are happening in the Middle East, North Africa. And and Gulf region. And you gave some very good examples of things that have been happening over the past uh, uh, couple of months, three months maybe. And incidentally, some of our listeners might know that our last podcast was uh, in early summer. So that's quite a few months. Yeah, shush is a good answer. But one of the uh, uh, things I would add to the list, because the list you gave was quite a depressing list. I would certainly not an exhaustive one. And certainly not an exhaustive uh, one. But I would also add something which I thought was quite important. And that is the election of a new president in Tunisia. Yeah, because that, I think, was another sign of hope, at least the way I read uh, Tunisia and North Africa. So, yes, uh, a lot uh, is happening. And much as it is not part of my remit and I'm not empowered or able uh, to speak much about it. But you also know that we are having recording this podcast when Germany and, you know, I'm very fond of Germany and its uh, institutions. Germany is now celebrating 30 years, the 30th anniversary of the fall of the Berlin Wall. Is it 30 years? It is 30 years. Would you believe it? The wall fell in 89 and in 1990 there was a reunification of the two Germanys. And I think that is worth mentioning just in passing, not to analyze it, because if you ask me some of your probing questions, I would fail miserably. But just to say that Germany is an important country in a lot of ways. And uh, the fact that that wall uh, fell and the way Germany managed to rally together Germans from the West and the East managed to reconstruct the country as a federal entity is remarkable. And of course, a lot of that is owed to Mikhail uh, Gorbachev, who basically was the one, in my opinion, who contributed to the demise of the Soviet Union. Gorbachev mentioned in this podcast. I didn't see that. Before before we started recording, I didn't see that. But, you know, and we won't go too much into the... No, no, please don't. Very (laughs) iconic. And, of course, you just simply mentioning it, I had no idea you were going to. 
you see those sort of concrete panels steadily falling and it was so dramatic oh, yes. and iconic wasn't oh, it oh yes it was very very dramatic and it's also the fall of the berlin wall itself is very iconic very meaningful very symbolic for me but also the way if you go into the old dusty documentaries that basically show that period and what happened and you look at the east germany then and west germany then two totally different germanys yeah. that are now sort of gradually uh, coming together if you look at some of those documentaries and you see all those east Germ germans walking into west germany bussing it to west germany it reminds me a little bit in a more civilized i suppose europeanized way of all the refugees in the middle east that are sort of running from one part of the middle east to another part of the middle east it's not that far away and it doesn't take too much imagination for people to close their eyes and pretend that those are Libyans going uh, somewhere else or these are Syrians running away or these are Palestinians in one of their many refugee camps. So for me that the the fall of the berlin wall and i've visited berlin i've uh, i've seen the wall in as much as there are bits of it that are there for touristic purposes if nothing else mm. and the fact that i'm a germanophile if that word exists in english uh, is important for me because i think that germany leads by example and it has done to a large extent although it also has, of course, its many flaws. Yes, and I'm not mentioning the B word. We all know what that is. You, no, don't. No. <laughs> no. Extensions. Is it going to be an annual thing? We're not going to talk about it. We're, not going, We're not going to talk about that. Let's basically say let's park the B word and yes. get over with the election first and let us see what kind of dust the general election will unsettle before we start thinking, well, how does that affect uh, Brexit post uh, the 12th of December? What I love about you is how unpredictable you are. And I'll tell you why, because Gorbachev, number one, didn't see that coming. Fall of the Berlin Wall, although 30 years is a very notable anniversary of that. But I, you know, and then you made that sort of beautiful parallel, actually, between the movement of refugees in the Middle East, North Africa versus, you know, what happened at that particular time in Germany. Um, very profound. And I was going to make a very sort of light churlish point about when I was in Germany in, in I think, 89 or 90. And literally, you, you could pass at that point. And so we were tipped off before we left the UK that you should take 5p pieces because they work in the cigarette machines in East Germany. <laughs> so my, 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 mine is a silly parallel. So we went across, you know, I didn't even smoke. I was only about 14 or something. We went across with loads of old 5p pieces, which, as you know, are rather akin to they our were current 10p. Ones, they're, yeah. they're, they're the same as our current small yeah, I do remember pieces. those. They worked. And literally, we, I mean, we had customs issues, clearly, because we were on the ferry on the way back. <laughs> no one was going to smoke 2,000 cigarettes. And we had like cartons of the things that had to go overboard. Anyway, you, know, you mentioned Lebanon, and that may well be a good place to start. I'll, I'll have to confess, and you won't be surprised, but I was reading your article, A Political Pea Soup, MENA and Gulf regions you're talking about, of course, there, on your website, epictarsis.net. A uh, very good article, actually, because I felt it... Uh, I'm not just saying that because you're sitting there and I want to be nice to you. But it gave a nice sort of whistle-stop tour of where we're at in a, in a variety of countries in the Middle East and North Africa. And then, of course, as you, you are wont to do, punctuated with these um, really insightful pieces as well. So I was going to use your article as a bit of a template for this podcast, um, I feel like starting with Lebanon rather than Iraq. We have protests in both countries. Um, shall we start with Lebanon? 
Let's start with Lebanon, and let me give you a little uh, a little uh, info about this article that you kindly referred to. Mm. First of all, I appreciate that you're saying what you're saying, because yes, you're a friend, but as a friend, I expect uh, criticism as much as praise. But this article, when I started writing this, and I'm now writing less and less articles because there are so many people out there who are bombarding us with articles. I mean, look yeah. at social media. If Some people cannot even work if you're going to follow everything that's posted on the different platforms. But when I was writing this um, article, the MENA and Gulf regions, a political pea soup, uh, and that reminded me of the foggy London days when I used to sit and look outside and you couldn't see beyond your nose yeah. in a way. Gone are those uh, days when we didn't think of uh, the climate change and what mm, have you. True. But I wrote more about an overview of those countries, what you called a whistle-stop uh, tour of those countries. And then one of my closest friends and somebody who is one of the best intellectuals I know in the Arab world, Dr. Elizabeth Kassab, mm. whom you have met when we did my book launch a few months ago, I sent it to her because she's my unofficial editor. And by unofficial, it means she doesn't charge me for reading my <laughs> articles. And she came back to me and she said, Harry, this is a good article. But what you're saying here is what everybody has been saying for the last so many years. There is a problem here. There is a problem there. Morocco, uh, uh, Gulf area, Syria, Iraq, what have you. Shouldn't you then take it a, a bit further and say, well, what has changed now? Mm. And of course, when an editor, any editor does this kind of comment to a writer, your first reaction is, oh, my God, they think they go know again. it all. Here we go again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But then, of course, after that five minute reaction, when I settled down, I, of course, realized that more often than not, Elizabeth is right. Yeah. So I then added the second part of the article, which mm. is, okay, this is where we are today, but this is where we have been grosso modo in different ways for so many years already. What is new and what do the protests today show that is different from those that happened in 2010, 2011, when under different hats, you and I used to talk so much about those articles and those protests. Right, you're not supposed to shake paper on air. Okay? <laughs> that, that's a sound we try and avoid, technically. But I'm going to shake it because you keep stealing my questions. All right, sorry then. Thanks very much. I won't have any <laughs> questions. Really. I mean, that was where I was going to start with Lebanon, also with a, with a reference to Iraq and, and many other countries. You know, I mean, crudely, it was, is this Arab Spring Mark II? And if it's even remotely comparable, what's different about it? Good question, and that's a very long question, but I'll try and be succinct. And as you know, that's not one of my strengths. Mine neither. <laughs> <laughs> what is different in a nutshell in what is happening with the uprisings today is twofold. In the past, the uprisings that took place were always uprisings, in my opinion, who were still confessional, who were still sectarian. Each community defended its own interests, hid under the cover of its own community and hierarchs. One thing that has certainly happened now, and this can be seen so much in Lebanon and in Iraq, they're different countries with somewhat different aspirations, but there are commonalities as well, is that 
they are no longer talking in terms of I'm a Shia, so I'm going to defend my Shia interests. I'm a Sunni, I'm going to defend my Sunni interests. I'm a uh, Christian, I'm going to defend my Christian interests. What has happened is that people are uh, defending the interests of the country. And that is different because if you look at the protests in Iraq or uh, Lebanon on television or whatever media you use, in the past, you would have seen a few of the national flags of those countries being carried by the protesters. But you would see more of the political party flags of each party, be that Hezbollah, be that the others, be that whichever one. And now that is not the case. In Lebanon, for instance, you would see a sea of Lebanese flags all over the place. In Iraq, it's the Iraqi flag. So in a sense, it's been desectorized. It's become a national issue. People are struggling for their country. This is one thing. The second thing that has happened is that in the past, when protesters went out, there was a natural reaction to say, we're fed up with the regime. They've been there. They've been ruling us. They've been abusing us for so long. We want the opposition or we want somebody else to come in. What is happening now is that protesters are saying all politicians are the same. They're corrupt, they're incompetent, they're this, that, and the other, whether they're in power or whether they're in the opposition. We want to remove them and put new people in their places, people who are maybe more technocratic in their approach, less sectarian in their approach, less wedded to the interests of their own community versus the nation, which is a receptacle of so many different ethnicities, sects, and communities. This is the second thing that's happening. The approach has become different. And therefore, put those two together, you get a third very interesting and very important outcome, which is that those protesters in Iraq and in Lebanon, for sure, it could apply to other countries. Sudan is an example. Algeria is an example where they're saying it's not that we want you to remove ex-politicians so that you can bring a Y-politician from the same bag and put there and say, oh, well, there you go. We've removed the person you don't like. What they want to do is to change the system. And that's very radical. And by being radical, it is also very threatening to the political elites. But it is also dangerous because you have to be sure that there is no void that could result, which could make the situation worse in a different way. Well, we've seen that in Iraq, haven't we? Yes. Notably. Um, Will that not, though, taking Lebanon as an example and having heard what you've said, really carve up what, what constitutionally is the process? You've got a prime minister, a Sunni, who's gone at this point, a president, Christian, who is under great pressure at the moment. I mean, is all that going to be deconstructed then? Well, if you take the, uh, the, the ambitions and the demands of the protesters, and there have been, what, uh, one million Lebanese who've been on the streets? Since the 17th of October, one, I mean, people uh, say, I say one million because I like to be conservative in my numbers. But somebody, a very well-known journalist in Lebanon by the name of Nadim Atesh, who has a program called DNA and a lot of Middle Easterners and certainly Lebanese know him, he would say 1.2 million, 1.5 million even, because what has happened is that those... In a country of 6 million? In a con No, no, in a country of less than 6 million. You're oh. talking about 6 million when you get the refugees and everybody else there. But if 
you get the Lebanese there, mm. you have definitely far, far less than that. And what has happened is you look at Tripoli. Now, Tripoli in the north, Troubles, in the north of uh, Lebanon, has always been a Sunni-held uh, area. You look at the south, which has been more Shia and a lot of Amal and Hezbollah uh, influence there. Now you look at it from north to south, east to west, the country is saying, no, we've had enough. You look the same at Iraq, and I'm intermingling the two because there are overlaps. And there is something that's happening. The, 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 the chant, one of the chants in Iraq that really impressed me is, give us a country. Donnez-nous un pays is the way they're saying it in French. Now, look at how I constructed this, uh, James. I didn't say give us back our country. I said give us our country or give us a country. In other words, those citizens, so-called, because being a citizen means you have rights and responsibilities. We know that in the UK. We know that in Europe. We know that in other countries. In those countries, those so-called citizens, people who hold a passport, uh, who pay some tax, who pay bills, feel that they're so marginalized and disempowered that they do not even belong to the country. So they're telling those elites who are corrupt, who've amassed huge uh, fortunes on the back of the majority of hardworking people, give us a country or give us the country back. And this is where... It stays today, and this is why it's a different kind of protests in 2018, 2019. That wasn't the case in 2010 onward. So taking that point, what does it mean to be Lebanese now then? Or what would they like it to mean? Being Lebanese is being a man or a woman or a child, because there are so many kids and teenagers who are in the streets protesting as well in Lebanon, just as it is the case in uh, Iraq, just as it was the case in Algeria and in Sudan. What it means to be Lebanese is to belong to a country to have a national identity, not a sectarian identity, not to say I'm Christian belonging to the Greek, Catholic, or Melkite community, I'm a Sunni belonging to this clan or the other, I'm a Shia belonging to Hezbollah or Amal, or I'm part of the Maronites, yeah, but I'm with the Lebanese forces, not with the uh, President Aoun's party, or I'm with Marada, another party. So the whole sense is to bring it back to the national roots of the country. I'm Lebanese. I'm part of this country, not part of these elites from different confessions, and in Lebanon there are 18 of them, coming together and doing what they're doing. This is the interesting thing that is happening in Lebanon, and this is also the interesting thing that is happening in Iraq, where America and to a larger extent Iran have basically had a stranglehold on Iraq and on its corrupt politicians and incompetent political system. And people now are saying, no more of this. We don't want this. And if you look at what is happening in parts of Iraq, whether it's in Najaf, in Karbala, in uh, Baghdad itself, in other parts of the country, people are saying, enough of this. We want a country. We want somewhere to live where we can call our own. And that, to me, is a huge qualitative leap that politicians are desperately struggling 
to deal with because until now it was always we have protests let's tweak the system they will calm down and life uh, goes on now life is not going on because these protests are continuing and they're quite threatening to the regimes in those different countries in different ways well we, we talk about let's tweak the political process but the worst version of that is the thumbscrews come out so you know you have these big popular protests and and it can get you know a proper bloody and violent crackdown we've seen it in egypt we've seen it in many countries we've seen it in syria obviously um I'm going to throw some of your own words at you to ask this question. You mentioned in your article, um, well, this is how you describe basically what's going on in the region when the dignity of men and women is being eroded on a daily basis. You use the phrase a lethal and cyclical, and that's the important word I want to bring up, combination of political disempowerment, rights-based marginalisation and economic destitution. So I'm obviously going to ask you what breaks that cycle? What stops a more oppressive reaction to the the people rising up for their own rights? Uh, It is to have clean politicians who are not corrupt and politicians who are willing to work for the interest and the welfare of their own citizens and not necessarily be beholden to outside powers or principalities or to the influence and power of the big elites in their own uh, countries. That is what it takes. And it's a big ask. It's not a small ask. But what I also say in that article, amongst many other things, is that this is not something that could be done in one or two uprisings or one or two years. And the reason is that the system for so many years, from colonial times to post-colonial times, I mean, in colonial times, uh, a lot of Arab thinkers and writers said, well, it's all the the fault of the colonial system, largely the UK and France, plus Italy and some others. The colonial system went, and then gradually after a while when you thought that the system was going to get better, then you suddenly had uh, the regimes themselves coming there, grabbing power, sticking to it, and doing whatever they want for their own interest, not for that of the uh, citizens or the people. Let's call them people. I'm not sure they really qualify as citizens of of those countries. This is why it is a big ask that will take a lot, but... What is that Chinese thing that a long journey starts with the first step or something like that? You have to start somewhere to clean up the system and move forward. And the only way that it could be done, the only unstoppable way that it could be done is not to rely on the uh, goodwill and uh, beautiful French word which is used in English, the bonhomie of the politicians, but on the unstoppable power of the street. That is what makes uh, things happen. And bloodbaths, yes, one of the first things I said when I've been asked my opinion about this on many an occasion, I've said what worries me is that the thugs, the arms, the pushback will come in such a bloody way that it's going to make life even more difficult. Yes, this is this is difficult, but Fortunately, thankfully, in Lebanon, that has been, it's it's happened, but it's happened in a very minor way. It's happened much more in Iraq, 
where there have been so many people who've been killed. But I've listened to podcasts in Arabic. I've listened to people talking where they say, my life doesn't matter. There is something bigger than my life that is the future of our country, the future of our own destination. And this is something that you and I, living in the cosseted realities of the West, no longer have that sense of burning fire in us to say, you know what, I'm ready to die if it's going to make a change. But that is exactly what those people now are saying in different ways. The Lebanese say it in a more how should I put it, genial, genteel way, the Iraqis say it in a much coarser manner. But the message is the same. And if you look at the heart of uh, Baghdad, for instance, the capital of Iraq, where a lot of these demonstrations is happening, that icon, as you call it, is Tahrir Square. And in Tahrir Square, there's very interesting things that are happening. There is a huge multi-story building which is referred to often as the Turkish restaurant. The reason it's uh, referred to as the Turkish restaurant is because in the 19, early 1980s, the top floor served as a Turkish restaurant. It's been bombed throughout two uh, wars in Iraq, and now it's basically an empty carcass. People have occupied that. Citizens, men, women, young men have occupied that in order to sort of overlook what is happening in Tahrir Square and defend what they call their own revolution. That, to me, is something interesting. Another thing I would tell you, just a little bit further down from there, there is a bridge called Al-Jumhuriya. Al-Jumhuriya is known as the Republic Bridge. The Republic Bridge is where people are sitting there, and it's a bridge that links Tahrir Square to the green zone, where you have embassies, you have uh, government offices. People are sitting there protesting. All this, to me, is symptomatic of a kettle, a cup that has overflown. And the question is, what's going to happen? Don't ask me that, because I'm going to give you my standard answer. I'm not a prophet. I can read the signs, but I'm not clever enough like some other people to predict where it's going to go. Because as you well know, if we put our own hats back, the ones we used to use many years ago, I used to tell you that I find it unimaginable that somebody like the Syrian president Bashar al-Assad can stay in power after the way he slaughtered his country. Well, the man is now gradually becoming the supreme uh, name. He's not the commander because the commander is either Iranian or Russian, but he is still there uh, kicking and uh, screaming to some extent. So what will happen, I don't know. But what I do know is that there is something happening that is quite, quite uh, noteworthy. And let me finish with this on this point, uh, James, if I may. The number of women who are participating in those demonstrations is remarkable also. From Lebanon to uh, Iraq, to Sudan. There was an icon in the Sudanese uh, demonstrations, uh, a woman, I can't remember what they called her, but she was a reference in there. To Algeria, women are standing shoulder to shoulder with men in a very patriarchal, uh, in some cases highly illiterate societies, to try and change the system. And the least we can do, the least we can do, 
as we see this happening and as we see that those people who want to preserve their their power bases be they politicians be they clerics be they whatever they may be that these the least we can do is to say we empathize with you we respect you for what you're doing in the hope that you can make uh, a change but as you say you know making predictions has made a fool out of even the cleverest of people i absolutely. think absolutely what worries me actually much worries me particularly about this region but you know you mentioned the fact there needs to be change we talked about breaking the cycle we talked about what's different now from 2011 um that's all well and good but you said it yourself didn't you with syria you 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 referenced russia and iran and at what point do those international players not allow the change to happen. It reminds me a bit, it's a strange analogy, but it reminds me a bit of football matches where you've got 50,000 people in the stadium, they're passionate, they're taking part, you know, it's they're making the noise, that's the, that's the piece that people are interested in. But actually the stadiums could be empty because millions upon millions are watching on TV and it's all about the TV. So that analogy makes me think, well, you've got the, the people rising up in their numbers, making their voice heard, wanting better economic circumstances, wanting to have their dignity upheld as men and women. But then at what point do those big players from other countries with their foreign policies say, well, they might be your aspirations and that might be well and good on the face of it, but we're not going to allow that to happen. That's a very good question, and that's inherent to every movement that takes place anywhere in the world, certainly in the developing world, and it is true to the MENA region as well, James. But what I would say is that those protests that we're seeing are not only protests that are against the governing elites. They are also protests against the hegemony and the interference by outside powers in those countries. And what actually strikes me, and this is, this is quite telling for me, what actually strikes me is that in Iraq and to a lesser extent in Lebanon, there has been a pushback against Iran. The demonstrators are shouting, we don't want any more of Iran, we don't want Iran's interference. Now, when you consider that Iraq is almost like a, a deposit account for Iran. Certainly now with the Trump administration imposing all its sanctions. Oil from Iraq, and Iraq is the fifth oil producing country in the world. Let's not forget that. And imagine, fifth oil producing country with corrupt politicians. Most of its citizens don't have power, electricity, water, etc., etc. I mean, how, how more can I describe the situation of the ordinary uh, man and woman in the street? But Iran gets oil from Iraq. Iran gets oodles of money from Iraq to sustain it. Those Iraqis are saying, look, I mean, excuse me, what, are we the bankers of Iran or can you use that money, that oil, that revenue, all that to help us? And in the way that they say this to Iran, because Iran has overstretched its uh, footprint in the region a little bit too much, in my humble opinion, the same could be said of America, which sort of now is in a stage, and this is also another critical point, is in a state of disengagement from the region. 
It started with Obama. It didn't start with Trump. People who say that Trump turned his back on the Middle East uh, and doesn't want to do anything with the Middle East, well, they are right. But it started with Obama. Remember Syria. Remember Egypt. Remember all those other issues. Listen to Samantha Power. Off mic, we were talking about Samantha Power doing her book tour, where she talks about how she was so, as a woman who is so much into human rights and what have you, she talked about these things. It started with Obama, and it's certainly become extremely clear with uh, Trump that America is disengaging with the Middle East. It thinks that it doesn't want to do anything with the Middle East, whether that's because America first means an isolationist policy or whether it means that it's looking toward uh, China and other parts of the world. I don't know. Ask cleverer people that question. But what I would say is that that with that disengagement by America and with the pushback against Iran, with the pushback against Saudi Arabia, with the pushback, I mean, in uh, in Lebanon, if something happens, the initial instinct of the person smoking the shisha, having a cup of Arabic coffee in a coffee shop in in downtown Beirut or Tripoli or Jeledib or wherever you want, would be so... Who did this? Was this under pressure from Saudi Arabia? Was this under pressure from uh, Iran? What did the French ambassador order the president of Lebanon to do uh, in order to meet those protests or whatever? This is, I mean, this is, the people are not stupid. You know, you look at those people, you say, okay, 60% of them are illiterate, uh, 40% of them are young, etc., etc. What do they know? Believe you me, they're more streetwise than you and I put together because these people are not living in cocoons like we live in. They actually live in the streets and they have to learn with the blows that life offers them. So in a sense, I think this is changing. And I think when there is the street, this is why I call the street unstoppable. If there is such a millions coming out uh, saying enough is enough or give us back a country or whatever, I think a time will come when things will change. Now, things aren't going to go to an idealist. I'm not an idealist. I'm more of a skeptic or a cynic. Uh, and in politics, I know it's interests that count, not good ideas or dreams. But there is a reaction to all those people in the streets, and that reaction would make people think and tweak. So instead of basically being 100% corrupt, if you're only 50% corrupt, then you've already saved your economy, you've stabilized your monetary system, your fiscal policies are better, and you don't have to have somebody in Basra in Iraq under 50 degrees centigrade or Celsius heat in summer, not being able to have power to start an air conditioning unit. I mean, this is where we are. And it is unacceptable. I don't care what people say. It is unacceptable to have this. So if you need to make an omelet, I'm saying that maybe it's worth breaking a few eggs. Very good point. I'd like to just, we've mentioned Syria, but let's touch upon it explicitly obviously you in that little piece there mentioned trump pulling out of the middle east and so forth and of course the furore was abandoning the kurds leaving the 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 turkish operations to sweep into northern syria where exactly are we at with that because during that period of time we also had the operation that killed um al-baghdadi the then leader of, of isis who was replaced i'd like your analysis on on what's going on in northern syria and the country as a whole 
My analysis is is quite simple on what's happening in northeast Syria or the northern Syria at the moment, um, James. On the one hand, I would say that President Trump is either supremely intelligent, as he himself tweeted about himself by saying he's got unmatched intelligence and imagination. Well, a f- a fine traits to have. It is very fine. There are very fine traits to have, and they're so fine and so supernal that I cannot actually reach out and understand them. <laughs> but uh, whether it's that or whether it's an absolute mess that he's creating as he's trying to disengage, because, of course, he's one person in administration and he's, okay, the commander of the armed forces, he's the supreme uh, politician president in the United States, but there are people in the White House, in Capitol Hill, uh, who are not necessarily happy with what is happening with him. Look at the attempts to impeach him. Look at the situation in Congress where there are so many attempts to embarrass him, constrain him, whereas the Senate is still pretty much his own football stadium, to use your metaphor. But what is happening is that President Trump blurts out tweets and then thinks and then draws back from those And this is what's happened, this mess of, are they staying in Syria? Are they not staying in Syria? It's a token force. Are they going to Iraq? Uh, Who says they're much safer or more wanted in Iraq than they're in Syria? What happens to those Kurds? And the Kurds, bless them, as my grandmother would say in Armenian, uh, they have never learned that politics is not liking you. I mean, uh, the poor Kurds, they've been for decades used by different forces, and when they are no longer expedient, they're just dropped. And what was said about that is, even to the extent where you you had a little raising up of a voice saying, hang on, we got you the pants of the leader of Islamic State in order for you to DNA test to make sure you got the right person. Absolutely. And then Trump says, yes, but you had no military role. Get get back in your box. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. So all this has happened with all these uh, permutations. Erdogan is another bully. Uh, he sort of thinks he can. Uh, he 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 thinks far too highly of himself, and he overstretches when it comes to uh, Turkey's geostrategic interests or abilities. Put Turkey there. Put the the Americans there. Put the Kurds who've been snookered pretty much. And what do you have? I mean, for me, it's very simple. The two powers that gained from this are Russia and Syria. Russia, because it is gradually replacing America as the new policeman or the new influence in the Middle East, pre-Glasnost and pre-Perestroika and pre-the time when we were we started this podcast with the Gorbachev. melting down of the Soviet structure. USSR. The USSR. Then there was a Cold War. You knew who was your friend and who was your enemy. You knew which camp you wanted to sit in. Yeah. Now it's a mishmash of different camps. And what has happened is while... Russia, as a federation, retreated after the collapse of the Soviet Union. Now it's coming back again, not only in in Syria. In Syria, it pretty much controls uh, Putin. Vladimir Putin does whatever he wants. And the rest, certainly the president of Syria, al-Assad, certainly do what he wants to a large extent. But look at what he's doing. The man is going to, and being fated and welcomed in Saudi Arabia, the bastion of Islamist conservatism 
a staunch ally of the United States is going around fanning the ambitions of uh, Vladimir Putin. You look at what he's doing all over the place and you wonder, that's Russia. And as far as Bashar al-Assad is concerned, well, I would be enjoying myself and celebrating the fact that four or five years ago, we were talking about his demise or his arrest, or him being uh, in front of the uh, International Criminal Court, or him running away with his millions and living uh, somewhere in exile like a lot of those uh, leaders. At the moment, the man is going around pretending that he's back in control of the whole of Syria. So Northeast Syria and all these shenanigans and political moves that took place offered that part of the country, which was beyond the remit of the Syrian armed forces and Russia, to Russia and via Russia to the Syrians again. And uh, all the others, Erdogan and all these others, just play the game as they see it fit. It's all about what is expedient today. Remember one other thing. There are roughly 3.6, 3.7 million Syrian refugees in Turkey. This costs them money to keep those people in Turkey. And the Turkish population is beginning slowly to say, okay, we've been very hospitable, which they have. We've been very kind, which they have. We've protected you and welcomed you and received you when you were running away, which they did. But enough is enough. Isn't it time you go back to your country? The economy of Turkey is wobbly compared to what it was before. And therefore, we need to look after number one before we start looking about our neighbors in Syria, no matter what Erdogan thinks. And even within Erdogan's political party, there are key politicians who used to be with him. Daoutoglu is one of them, who have actually split from that party and are in the process of creating or setting up their own parties. Why am I saying this? I'm saying this because this general discontent that is beginning to become more and more perceptible in uh, Turkey against the refugees, because at the end of the day, yes, this is my home. You're coming and you're taking my bedroom. If you, James, came into my house and told me, look, my wife kicked me out. Can I come and live with you? I'll tell you, okay, for a week. After the week, I'll tell you, James, isn't it time you find alternative arrangements? And if you like it, great. If you don't like it, well, it might strain our friendship. What I would say is that since this discontent is happening, Erdogan thought, hey, presidential elections are around the corner in Turkey. I want to stay in that magnificent, glitzy palace that I built for myself as an Ottoman emperor for another term. So in order to get the votes and be voted back in as president, I need to keep my Turkish voters happy. One way of doing that is I go, I create a 30-kilometer buffer zone inside Syria. I go to Russia, to Sochi. I meet with the Iranian and Russian uh, leaders. I tell them, look, give me this, and I'll push a couple of million of those refugees into Syria. That will make my voters happy. Who knows? they will probably elect me again. Now, that is the superficial level at which the political thinking is going. Because if you ask anybody from organizations that deal with refugees or with human rights, you can't just 
carry people, throw them in a buffer zone of 30 kilometers and say, fend for yourself. But that is also part and parcel of what is happening today in that northeastern belt. Well, you put that very eloquently, but the, the main thing going through my mind is that I'm going to have to tell my wife I'm spending a week on your couch, Harry. <laughs> I'm sure she'll be delighted, in fairness. Let's conclude. We've, we've literally done the tour. You've talked to us about... All the countries, really. We haven't touched so much on the Gulf states, to be honest. But we, we haven't touched on times. the Gulf states. But I'll tell you a word or two on the Gulf states by just saying that, as you well know from previous podcasts and from our own conversations and my own uh, work, is that I have been very critical of the embargo by three GCC countries against Qatar. I thought it was childish, it was stupid, it was a stroppy reaction, as if uh, a sovereign country like Qatar, no matter how small compared to some of the others, uh, Bahrain, which is embargoing Qatar, is even smaller, but let's not go there, uh, that you have to play it my way or it's the highway. Excuse me, where are we at the moment? But I am happy to say that the first three years of the embargo Qatar's economy uh, was struggling with the embargo. This year, for the first time, they've turned the corner and they're showing a clear profit, which means that they managed the embargo and now are in healthy uh, shape again. And that is remarkable, not only for the political leadership of uh, Qatar, but also for the advisors of Qatar and also for all the people who have written and stood by Qatar, not because they're in love with Qatar and they're out of love with Saudi Arabia or the United Arab Emirates, but because there is a principle there. You do your thing in your own country and let others decide their own foreign policy. So at the moment, there are signs, and I'll only call them signs, even feeble signs of hope, that with Kuwaiti mediation and some foreign pressure being exercised on the GCC countries as a whole, I think that there might be a mellowing down of this uh, embargo, and who knows, there might be a hug or two sometime in the future. It's not going to happen tomorrow, but given that we only do podcasts every few months these days, uh, James, who knows, our next podcast might be the reunion after the separation. Well, you know, the one with the strong arm around the neck of the other, when that person manages to wriggle out, the big guy's not so keen, so <laughs> I'll, I'll give you two months to work out my obvious question, which would be, well, you know, if obviously putting the stranglehold on hasn't worked, what will they do instead, if anything? Maybe, as you say, it's a dignified back out and, and maybe a little hug somewhere along the line, but it might not be. So, And that's a very good question. It's a very pertinent question because if I push that question a bit more and I probe a little bit more what you've just said, then I would ask myself, what is systemically wrong with the embargoing countries that they failed to have another GCC member kowtow to their demands. The other thing we haven't mentioned, I could say one state solution, we could go back to Trump, etc, etc, etc. You and I have probably over the weight of our 110 podcasts over nearly 10 years, probably spoken about the Israeli-Palestinian realities, your book, for instance. I mean, we, we've covered an awful lot of ground on Israel-Palestine. 
I say ground, maybe we've run in circles. That, mm-hmm. that, that could be a recurring theme for us, couldn't it? But we haven't mentioned that so much. We it, need to mention that. We should. We need. Give me three more, four more minutes. We're already way, way over We'll time. make it a round hour. Let's Harry. make it a round hour. That gives me four or five minutes to sort of prattle on. It would be on. somewhat remiss not to talk about I think it would be very Israel remiss Palestine. because on top of everything else, as a friend who knows me quite well, James, you know that I earned my first political stripes from the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, not from the MENA region, not from the Gulf region, not from Brexit and the EU, but from Israel-Palestine, pre- and post-Oslo chapter. So what I would say there is that, in my opinion, the deal of the century is dead. Is dead for many reasons. One, because it was never practically existent in the past. Secondly, because the people who are sponsoring it are... uh, political freshmen who don't really know what they're dealing with. Thirdly, because Israel itself is trying to get a government. They've had two elections in order to form a government. And at the moment, the uh, legendary, and legendary could be both positive and negative, Benjamin Netanyahu failed yet again to form a government. And the president of Israel gave Rivlin, gave uh, now the task to Benny Gantz from the blue and white party, Kahul Velavan, to form a government. I'm not sure he's going to be able to do it, and therefore we might even end up going into a third election, and there is no need that, there is no way that a deal would happen anytime during uh, election time or post-election time. But more importantly is because the Palestinians have said no. A blank no to the deal of the century because of what has happened pre the deal of the century, moving of the embassy to Jerusalem, cutting of the funds, uh, doing all these things, recognizing Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, even uh, the Golan Heights, etc. So Palestinians said no. And the Arab states, even those Arab states who are wavering, or if I should use a better word, treacherous enough to say we don't care about the Palestinians now, we want better relations with Israel because the big enemy is Iran, not Israel. Even those countries cannot really go out and uh, talk about forcing the Palestinians to accept the deal of the century because they just can't. The street will not allow it. It's not they don't want it. They want it. The political establishment in some of those Arab countries wants it because they want to be rid of the Palestinian problem. The people, the the street, wouldn't accept this kind of betrayal. And we can see what's happening. We can see the pressures that Jordan and its establishment and its king are under, pressured by other countries such as in the Gulf to try and force Jordan to accept the deal. And the plucky king of Jordan has resisted and has said no, much to his cost, because in the Arab world, as in many other instances, if you play by my rules, I'll give you money. If you don't play by my rules, I'll stop the money. And Jordan is a cash-starved country which needs the money. But Jordan has proven that it is, for different reasons, has proven that it is still withstanding that pressure. So you have the the political freshmen on the one hand, you have the Palestinian uh, outright blank refusal on the other. But more interestingly, if you look at one of the things that has not been spoken much about the deal of the century, because you've got all those experts and pundits who have basically pretty much 
devolved 60% of what is either on paper or in Jared Kushner's head about the deal of the century. But one of the things that has not been said much is that the deal of the century postulates the abolition or the dismantlement of the Palestinian Authority. Now, I'm not going to go into this at the moment because if we do this, you're going to tell me we need another 15 minutes and our listeners will have another intifada on our hands. But you were advocating for this in 2014. Yes, I was. Yes, I was. Because I, re- I reread your book and yeah. I actually started to understand your point a bit better. Yeah. Why not push back, push the problem? I mean, obviously, the negotiations and the politicization hasn't worked at all. It's left them in a, in a more vulnerable and occupied position. I've said many a time, and you're absolutely right. Thank you for mentioning that. You give me some credibility, at least, James. What I've mentioned time and again is that if the Palestinians really want to put Israel in a tight spot, financially, because that's where it hurts, is to say, you know what, we're dismantling the Palestinian Authority. We don't want this palaver of zones A, B and C. You're you're giving us the A, B and C on paper. But in reality, you're in control of everything from checkpoints to what money comes in, what tax remittances are given, etc., etc. Why should we do it? And then the Geneva Conventions would kick in and it would become the responsibility of the occupying force to take care of those three and a half million Palestinians, which they aren't doing now. But why aren't they doing it? One of the reasons they aren't doing it is because if the Palestinian Authority is dismantled, we come back to exactly what we've been talking about in Iraq, in Lebanon, in Sudan, in Algeria and other places. The ruling elites... You've got a cow that you're milking. If you remove the cow, what are you going to milk? How are you going to make your fortunes and build your houses and villas? How are you going to have millions to go and buy lands and put deposits in uh, foreign countries? So the Palestinian Authority is not too hasty uh, to see its own demise. And therefore, that's another psychological reason why the Palestinians don't want the deal of the century uh, to happen. Now that I've said this, I've got some more Palestinians who dislike me. <laughs> I'll tell you what, though, it was fascinating to reread your book on that because I thought I understood your point and I suddenly realised that I didn't quite understand it because it almost sounds counterintuitive until you explain, as you have, that perhaps you remove the cash cow and then it becomes a bit more of a pure process. And let me finish off by just saying that I know from our conversations, but also conversations I've had with the person uh, himself, is that you hosted in an institutional sense, not in a Middle East analysis sense like we're doing, you hosted Ziad al Sayig of the Middle East Council of Churches uh, on one of your podcasts. And interestingly enough, Ziad would have pretty much, and I think you felt it, would have pretty much the same flow of thoughts that we just shared now as well. So I'm delighted that you're doing that in an institutional capacity. I'm no longer here to do institutions with you, James, but you're finding very able and competent replacements. Oh, Harry. (laughs) Aren't you nice to your friends and associates? 
Shall I take out the violin? (laughs) (laughs) I think it's already out. Well, dear listeners, we've put you through, as it stands, the best part of an hour. And I I hope you'll indulge us. I mean, there was a lot to talk about. That much is is for sure. Look, six months. (laughs) Yeah, six six months. And and goodness me, if there is ever a region in the world where the reality changes by the minute, let alone, you know, there's a lot of minutes in six months. Someone can email in and tell us how many minutes there are in six months, but there's a lot. Harry, it's always a pleasure to have you opposite dispensing your analysis on the region I remain completely in awe of you it's fantastic I hope I sometimes put you under a bit of pressure Uh, I certainly try and ask questions that I feel others might have in order to get an explanation of what's going on and um, thanks ever so much for sitting opposite me and giving us those explanations I enjoy those pressures I enjoy those surprises but what I enjoy more is that you have the ability to give me an opportunity to tease out and develop my thoughts so that it's not just five second sound bites that you want from me like many others do. So thank you for taking the time, even though lazily you only do it every six months. (laughs) The Harry giveth and the Harry taketh away. There you go. Thanks, listeners, for being with us, for bearing with us, and for being patient. Harry said that, but I probably will carve this up into two or three little sound bites on top just to make your life a little bit easier. Certainly, time code where you can find your sections on the various regions and countries. So, thank you ever so much. Harry, thank you. And I would promise we'll be back with you in a month or so, but I'm really not in a position to do that, but we will try. Oh.